Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The word of the Lord. I'm Johnny Cursina, the lead pastor here. It's good to be with you guys. We had a week off last week. It was one of the reasons why I made sure that we had our 12th day of Christmas on the second day in the season of Epiphany. Thank you guys for indulging my joy of the Christmas season. If we were in the Eastern Church, we would still be celebrating Christmas. It goes all the way to February 2nd, so let's kind of like lean into that a little bit if you can. It's okay to have your Christmas tree still up. Some of us do. We do. This morning, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series in the season of Epiphany. We're looking at the vision and values of Christ Church Vienna. I'm hoping you grabbed one of these cards as you came in. If you didn't grab one when you are heading out, on the one side, it just has our logo, and on the other, it has our vision and values. We developed these 13 years ago, right before the church launched in November of 2011. A group of us were coming together, examining what it meant to be a church in a particular area and what we thought God was calling us to. And we've talked about this, we say it almost every week, Christ Church Vienna is a gospel-driven, 
externally focused extended family Anglican mission for Vienna. And as we break down those over the next six weeks, what we're looking at is we are a gospel-driven church, which means we believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to be people who have a biblical worldview, and we push that into our identity and how we approach the world around us. We want to let the grace of the gospel sink deep into our hearts and into how we interact with one another so that we are filled with humility and generosity of spirit. We are a church who is always thinking externally, um, to think outside of people who maybe are in the room right now, always to thinking outside to those who need the good news of Jesus Christ and who need the hope of God. So that looks at the dark places of this world, those who are struggling or vulnerable or weak, and we step in and we share the good news of Jesus Christ, our only hope and salvation. We want to be an extended family so that as you enter a church like this, regardless of your uh, your economic status, your, how many degrees you have, whether you are young or old, single, married, five years old or 95 years old, whether you come in with seven kids or you don't have any kids, that this is your extended family in this place, that a Christian church is called to be that, a local expression of God's people is meant to be a unique home, a place where everyone can find family and home. We're also an Anglican mission, so you see that in some of the very obvious things, like we celebrate communion every week, and I'm wearing a collar. I'm a presbyter or priest in our denomination, and so that's our polity. Um, but it's also an ethos that we have that's built out of a book of common prayer, a Reformation theology from a couple hundred years ago that says we build on the history of the church, and we live out our theology and our formation collectively and corporately. We'll talk about that later in a few weeks. And lastly, we are for Vienna. And on one level, this means we, we specifically say, and we, you'll see it on the card, is we talk about being for Vienna, not just in Vienna. We want to carry that out in all that we do. So the idea of being for something, not just in something, is this. We aren't just in Madison using it. We want to be advocates for the places we um, step into. And that means as a church, we're called specifically to Vienna. And so we want to be an advocate for God's purposes and flourishing in this place. But that also means you individually have to carry that out wherever you live. So that if you go to school somewhere else, if you live in a neighborhood far away from here, if you work downtown, you are supposed to be for that place, pushing back the effects of sin and darkness in that place, an incarnational presence of God and of the gospel wherever you live. And that's what we're called to be as a for Vienna church. So over the next few weeks, the reason we're doing this is also because back in the fall, we spent 12 weeks looking at a full theology, New Testament theology of the church. What is it to be or become the people of God? That all of us collectively, regardless of whether we're at Christ Church Vienna or anywhere in the world, are called to be. And now over the next six weeks, we're looking at our unique calling. Today, specifically, we're digging into being a gospel-driven church. So let me pray for us and for this series as we try to understand what God is calling us uniquely to be and become. God, our Father, you have called us together as your church in this place at this time. We believe that you have called us to be that gospel-driven, externally focused, extended family, Anglican mission for Vienna. I pray that over the next six weeks that you would help us to walk into that, give us creative ideas on how to strategically move that forward, enable us to live fully into the joy of becoming your people in this place at this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're looking at gospel-driven and what it means to be a gospel-driven church, I had, um, had us read Galatians chapter 2, and this 
part that gets a little bit confusing and a part that's somewhat interesting in the way the story is told. The basic story of the book of Galatians is Paul is emphasizing the gospel. He says again and again, the gospel is what matters. And what he's confronting is um, a bunch of people who came into the church, false teachers who came to this Gentile and Jewish church, and he came into the church and it was, um, there were people coming in saying, you have to become circumcised to be a completed Christian. So there were a bunch of Gentile Christians, and the Jewish Christians were saying, well, to really be a true Christian, you have to become a Jewish Christian. You have to be circumcised. And Paul says, if you do that, if you go and be circumcised thinking it's necessary, you are nullifying the gospel. You're making it as if the cross of Christ doesn't matter. And in order to, um, to explain himself a little bit, he tells a story about confronting Peter. And that's what we got in verses 11 through 13. Let me read that again. Paul writes, but when Peter, the great Peter, came to Antioch, a city a couple hundred miles north of Jerusalem, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews, Jewish Christians, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So the story is this. Peter had gone from Jerusalem, which is where the center of the church was. It was sort of the Rome for the Catholic church. Jerusalem was the center of the church in the first century. And this is within a decade or two after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And so that was the center of the church. Peter goes and visits Paul, who is working up in Antioch, up in Syria, a couple hundred miles away. It's primarily a church filled with Gentiles. There weren't a ton of Jews there. Peter arrives, and when he comes, he participates in the life of the church there, and he even eats, has table fellowship, goes into the homes of Gentile Christians. But then some guys come from Jerusalem, and these are kind of more diehard Jewish Christians following Jewish dietary laws, Sabbath, circumcision, the things you're supposed to do and not do, they arrive and Peter gets nervous and he stops eating with the Gentiles. And then the other Jewish Christians like Barnabas start following Peter's lead. Well, I guess we can't eat with Gentiles because that's a bad thing. And Paul here is recounting how he confronts Peter. And what he confronts him about is essentially um, cultural or racial superiority. Because that's what was going on here. There was a huge divide in, in our culture today. The black-white divide in America over the past century, for them, was the Jewish-Gentile divide. It was a dividing line of ethnicity and race and culture. And the Jewish people in that first century thought themselves better than, superior to a Gentile. They were considered, Gentiles were considered sinners because they didn't even have the law, whereas a Jewish person could only be a transgressor of the law. You weren't supposed to even eat with them, let alone do anything else with them. But Paul is not just talking about racism. He's talking about a gospel issue. And he's saying, this is a gospel issue, and it, the gospel has implications for how we live out our life everywhere. And so Paul says that Peter stands, the, the words there that are listed are condemned. Peter is afraid He's acting hypocritically. He's leading others astray. And Paul confronts him in verse 14. He says, But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the first thing Paul is saying is, hey, look, Peter, for a long time, you've, you've kind of done away with all the Jewish rules. You're eating with Gentiles. So why are you forcing the Gentiles to become Jewish all of a sudden, as if you have to be a Jewish person to be fully Christian? And then Peter makes it a, Paul makes it a little more clear when he says this, you are not, your conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And that's the crux of his entire argument here. You're you're not in step with the truth of the gospel. That in step is this. It's, in step is actually two Greek words that means um, straight walking. It's the Greek word ortho, from which we get orthodontist. The orthodontist makes your dentists straight, right? And so here he's saying you're not straight in line with walking in line with the gospel because you stopped eating with Gentiles. He goes on to say the basic center part of the gospel. We know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Works of the law had to do with all those ritual ceremonial things tied to the Jewish Old Testament. The, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, it was things like what you could eat or wear, observing the Sabbath, being circumcised, these sorts of things that made you distinctly culturally Jewish. These were works of the law, the things that made you clean or unclean in a Jewish understanding of things. And Paul is saying, look, we know it is by faith in Christ, not by following these works of the law. And you can actually substitute instead of works of the law, because that doesn't really work for us, anything that is religious or moral as opposed to the gospel. And in that sense, it's also anything we do or perform, think you have to perform to be acceptable or accepted. So you may not follow a religious pattern, but there's inevitably in every culture, in every place, There are things that we think you have to do to be in, to be successful, to have achieved it. We have performance-based mindsets. So whether it's your career and successful kids and a perfectly manicured lawn, it's like that's what tells you you're in. That might be your works of the law. It's performance-based instead of by grace. And Paul says, look, we know that we are made right before God, justified, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the word he uses is justification or justified. That means to be right with God, to be acceptable before God, to be considered or declared righteous. Now, the problem that Paul is getting at is that every one of us tends to justify ourselves. We want to look to anything besides Christ for our meaning, our purpose, our acceptability before God and others. It's the default mode of our heart. To get our self-esteem, we are always comparing ourselves with others. And so whatever it is that we value, whatever you value and you think is really important to have or do, whether it's being academically high, having a lot of money, being a, a, following all the rules, whatever it is that you value, you will use that to compare yourself to others and we build our self-esteem on it. 
we are justifying ourselves on the basis of it. So how do you justify yourself? Or what's your tendency when you're not leaning into the gospel? What do you turn to to build your identity, your meaning, your purpose? In Northern Virginia, it's probably, for most of you, it's probably not what it was for Peter, some sort of cultural or racial superiority. But it's probably performance-based nonetheless. And you can figure this out if you actually really talk to any high school kids. Because if you're a high school kid, my guess is you feel that this is a performance-based culture that we live in. You've got to get the A's, take all the AP classes, get the SATs, get into the right college or your life is basically done before you're 17. You have parents who are constantly riding you about your grades, worried about everything you're doing or not doing, writing you about your homework, your college applications. You feel it from them, even if they're sort of subtle about it. Did you turn the assignment in? So how, how would we expect that you, if you're 16, 14, 17, if you grew up in this culture, how do we expect you not to grow up and become adults who are justifying yourself on the basis of your performance? Your academic success, how great your career is, you're being formed into that as the default mode of your heart. And you might even be a teenager, a high school kid who's a Christian, who says, yeah, I buy into the gospel. I'm loved and accepted by God through Jesus Christ. You get that? But that performance and success-based mentality is so rooted in us that we often are building our self-worth on the basis of how we're performing. We're always comparing ourselves and if we feel like we're measuring up to our peers, we feel superior. If we feel like we're falling short to them or our own standards, we feel shame and failures. And Paul says, don't go that direction. Lean into the gospel. In verse 20, he talks directly to Peter, but he says it from the perspective of himself. He's talking about the Peter setup, and he says um, this famous phrase, this famous verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying, look, here's how I view myself now. Not on the basis of my performance, my moral performance, the works of the law, my good grades. Paul says, God views me as if I died for my sin because Christ did for me. When God looks at me, he views me as if he's viewing Jesus. And I am free from condemnation, my own condemnation, God's condemnation. So I have no guilt, shame, fear. Now I live daily in my life, in my life in the flesh, on the basis of faith in Christ, not my performance. I'm not looking at how I did today to see how I feel good about myself. I look to Christ and I keep looking to him. And that's why he says in verse 19, I died to the law. You see, for Paul, before he became a Christian, before he believed in Jesus, lived his life by following the works of the law. He followed the law better than any Jewish follower of the law. He was a rabbi of the highest standards. And yet he looks back and says, I died to following the law as a way of justifying myself, as a basis for my acceptance before God. I no longer look to my record to justify myself. I look to Christ's for me. So when he addresses Peter, he's addressing an, a gospel issue, a heart issue, and not just a performance and action issue. 
Because Peter's offense was not just bad behavior, stopping eating with Gentiles, making them feel bad, but contradicting the gospel. And to understand the depth of it, though, we have to give Peter a little bit of an out here, okay? Give Peter a little bit of an out because Peter was Jewish, had been raised in a Jewish household. And if you were a first century Jewish, Jewish person, you had these very clear views of what was clean and unclean, what was good and acceptable and what was not. And their ceremonial law, which is circumcision, the foods you could eat, not touching a dead body, cleaning out the mildew in your house, no lobster, no bacon, and going nowhere near Gentiles was pretty much the standard of how you lived your life. Whom you ate with was very, very important, and you could not go near or eat with a Gentile. Beth Moore, in her study on Galatians, writes this, sharing salt and dipping bread in the same bowl had covenantal overtones for a Jewish person. Therefore, sitting at the same table as Gentiles, let alone eating their food, was an unthinkable reversal of everything you believed in. So that's what Peter had grown up in. So just because he became a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that that was done away with. That's still a part of his growing up and the culture he had lived in his whole life, the air he breathed, the water he swam in. And yet he had had a life lived with Jesus Christ. Not only that, he had an experience where he understood that the gospel was available to Gentiles even if they didn't become Jews. He has this vision in Acts chapter 10 of a tablecloth coming down. He's hungry. He has this vision, and the vision is where all these animals that are unclean are on the tablecloth. So there's like lobster, and there's pork, and there's like eagles and things you're supposed to not eat. And God says, go ahead, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter doesn't say, ooh, gross, I don't eat eagles. He says, I can't because they're unclean. The pork is unclean. The lobster is unclean. And God says, do not call unclean what I call clean. And then he has this revelation from God that because of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news, the salvation, the justification is available to all freely. They don't have to observe this law to get it. They just need to trust in Christ. And that's why Peter says to this Roman uh, soldier, this Roman officer whose house he visits, now I know in Acts 10.34, God shows no partiality to any culture or race. The gospel of grace is available for all, even the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit falls on a bunch of Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ there. So he'd had that whole experience. But the issue in Antioch, in this situation that happened, is he was dealing with fear. He was fearing this group that came from Jerusalem that's called the Circumcision Party. Now, why was Peter afraid of them? And I say, why was Peter afraid? Because Peter seemed to be fearless in nearly every other circumstance. In fact, in earlier in Acts, we find out that Peter was imprisoned, beaten, and nearly executed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was not afraid. But sometime later, some old friends from Jerusalem show up, and he betrays the gospel because he's afraid of their disapproval. Think about how powerful his background and his culture is in shaping his beliefs and his actions. And so instead, he walks into a sense of the superiority that would have been a part of his life from early on. Peter's whole life as a Jew was that Gentiles are unclean, 
and inferior. And it's hard for any of us not to revert back to our culture of our youth, of our growing up, of the land in which we live. We all have cultural norms and personal preferences, and we can turn them into main issues. All of our cultural preferences, our customs about like what you wear, type of music you listen to, foods you eat, they are things that are familiar and satisfying to us, but we can give moral and, and spiritual significance to them like Peter was doing here. And without the gospel, what we will find is that our hearts are constantly manufacturing something to build our self-esteem on. So we're constantly comparing ourselves with others, our group with others. And that's why we need the gospel. And I love that how Paul confronts Peter here. Paul doesn't confront Peter and say, hey, Peter, you're being a real jerk. Start eating with the Gentiles again. Nor does he say, hey, Peter, you're acting kind of racist. Go eat with the Gentiles. Instead, he kind of does actually a reversal on him. He comes at the same level as him. He says, Peter, you know the gospel. We both know the gospel. Think through its implications. If Paul had simply said to Peter, stop your bad behavior, stop being a jerk, stop being racist, Peter might have been ashamed and changed. But potentially later on in another situation, he might have been tempted to disdain and look down on or cut out Gentiles in some other way. Or he would have found something else in his own life to feel better about himself compared to others, to gain the acceptance and approval he was looking for. Here's the basics of it. It's not enough just to try to curb behavior. We have to see why we do what we do. It's not enough to try to be a better Christian. We need to let the gospel penetrate our hearts and displace the idols, the things that we truly worship and live for. And Paul uses the gospel. He's like, Peter, we both know that we are made right before God by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. This is true for Jews and Gentiles. We both know this. So let's live this way. We both know that God views us as fully justified as if we died on the cross with Jesus. That we don't need other people's approval. We don't even need our own approval because we are fully approved of by God in Jesus Christ. When Paul confronts Peter about his actions, he does so appealing to the gospel, saying, I want you to be a gospel-driven person, Peter. We both need to work on this, and we need each other to work on this. And that's what our calling is as a church, is to push the gospel into every aspect of our lives, into how we live, approach things, our attitudes, our thoughts. We want to allow the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for us, that we are saved by grace through faith. We want to let that define our identity and worldview. And we want to apply it in our lives daily, continually. There's not a point later on when you become a certain age when you get over needing the gospel. And this involves pushing the gospel deep in and letting it flow out to every area of our life. And that means having integrity. It's living increasingly in step with the gospel, working it deep in and pushing it out in everything that we do so that our worldview, our identity, our relationships, the work we approach, how we deal with politics, how we deal with money is in step with the gospel. 
that what I do with my body, how I live in my behavior, my attitudes, my thoughts, the words that come out of my mouth, even the desires of my heart are in step with the gospel, built on, shaped by, aligned with the truth of the gospel. It's working the gospel deeper in and further out in our lives collectively. Tim Keller sums it up in his study on Galatians. He says, to have this integrity is to bring everything in our lives in line with the direction of the gospel, to think out its implications in every area of our lives and seek to bring our thinking, feeling, and behavior in line. And as we do, as we as a church kind of become that gospel-driven church of integrity, people trying to live this out, push it deeper in and further out, we will be a church filled with humility, which is one of the hallmarks of a gospel-driven church. The gospel says this. Well, you've heard me say this, and it's quoting from Keller and others. We are more sinful than we're willing to admit. We are more loved in Jesus Christ than we dare to imagine. That's the gospel summed up in other words. We are more sinful than we're willing to admit, more loved in Jesus Christ than we dare to imagine. And it is by grace that we are saved. And because it's by grace... I can admit my sin and the depth of sinfulness in my life. I'm not always trying to hide something or cover up. I have nothing to hide. I know I'm sinful and in need of God's mercy. But it also means that I don't think of myself or can't think of myself as more superior or better than anyone. I'm not more holy or righteous or save-worthy than anyone, not by my nature, not by my skin color, not by my nationality, not by anything I do. I'm not more save-worthy. I am more sinful than I'm willing to admit. And this is the place of authentic humility. And because I know that I'm loved, I don't have to look at my culture or my achievements or my goodness for my value. I look to Christ. And that shapes my view of myself. I'm not inferior because I know I'm loved, nor am I superior because I know I'm just as sinful as you are. I don't have to compare myself anymore try to live up to a standard, yours, mine, the culture's. I don't have to live in envy, jealousy, competition. And so I don't have to be insecure and anxious or defensive, striving, all those things we're so good at. The gospel breaks it down. It says we are equally sinful and equally open to God's love. Humility, of course, as C.S. Lewis said, is not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less. When the gospel sinks in, that's what begins to push out. And we begin to live with a generosity of spirit. Christ Church Vienna, I believe, is called to be that church that is a generous of spirit, humble and generous of spirit, to desire God's purposes for all people around us, to have a kingdom mindset that we're not holding on to things as our own or needing to have credit needing to be the church that gets it or has all the attention. We want to see the gospel go forth whether we as a church survive or not. And so we don't live with a scarcity mindset. When the gospel truly sinks in, when we have a scarcity mindset, it's not sure that there's enough acceptance and love to go around or the only way I know that I measure up is if I can compare myself to others. But if I know I'm loved by grace by God, through, by grace, I have all I need in Jesus Christ. And so I'm at peace. And I'm able to rejoice with other people who are rejoicing, which is really hard to do sometimes. If I'm building my life on my career, 
and let's say my career is having a church, and somebody else's church is bigger and growing faster, how does that make me feel? It depends on where I'm placing my value. If I'm finding my identity and my worth in Christ, I'm at peace and can rejoice that God is moving in that place through those people. But if it's based on my performance, my work, my career, then I should feel pretty bad. I mean, theirs is three times as big and growing faster. And the same is true in anything that you value. Your athletics, your looks, your academics, your money, your family being perfect and your kids so successful. But if we can rest in the love of God for us, we can rejoice and celebrate with those who are succeeding and don't need to be, gener- don't need to be noticed or need to get the credit. So my hope is that we become a church filled with a culture of grace, welcoming, hospitable, friendly, able to be friends with people who don't benefit us, not just having to sit next to somebody who makes us look good, And as a result, be a church of healing. There are so many people who've been hurt by religion and the church, and this should be a safe place for you to enter and say, I don't have it figured out, I'm not really sure. And not worry that you look good or better or know how to measure up to others around you. It should be a church where anyone who is struggling in life can say, I can can be here. I need this gospel too. So that's my hope. I said we will let the gospel drive us. We don't need to warm our hearts by the fire of our career, our children's success and happiness, our achievements, a romantic partner, being liked and accepted by people. We are accepted in Christ Jesus. We have no need to be fearful or anxious as people. We are loved. Our striving, clamoring, comparing hearts can finally be at rest because Christ has put them to rest. Let's pray. God, as you call us to know you in Jesus Christ, I pray that we would hear that what you have offered us through your Son is a finished work. That there is no condemnation and that we are at peace with you and can be at peace with ourselves and with one another. And so empower us to become the church that is driven by the gospel of grace, filled with humility and generosity, and the love of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, Unless the Lord does raise the house in vain, its builders strive to yield the boast to morrow's gain. Tell me, what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn.
Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory.